I'm sure some of you are history buffs, and if you are, you know that we like stories and we like exact details from history, but the more you study history, you realize a lot has been left in the dust. We, we don't know precise dates all the time. We don't know exactly what, who was born when, what happened when. And so it's like that when it comes to wars. Sometimes we know exactly when a war started, and sometimes we have no idea. We just have a fuzzy idea of the general vicinity. But for those wars, we know when they started. Sometimes we can pinpoint it down to the day. For instance, we know that at Lexington and Concord, the shots that rang out on April 19, 1775, triggered the American Revolution. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand tipped the world into global war on uh, June 28, 1914. And of course, we all know that the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, the one that got the United States into the war, happened on December 7, 1941. So we have those dates. But we have another date, another time that we know exactly when a war began. And that's when the war against God began. We don't have a date for it, but we know exactly where it was because when we open our scriptures, it's right there. Happened a long time before the war on Christmas that always gets dragged out this time of year. The real war, our war against God, started in Genesis 3, verse 6. It was when a man and a woman decided to deliberately disobey their creator, to rebel against his rule by eating the one thing their creator had asked them not to take. That was the day when all of creation shuddered, when all of creation was corrupted by the evil of our actions. That was a day that we looked at the God we knew, the God who loved us, and we said, we declare war against you. And from that day on, we've been trying to hurt God through every measure possible. We've thrown every sin against him we could even think of, every perversion we can come up with in our imaginations. We've abused his creation. We've twisted his blessings. We've hurt and murdered those he created in his image. And one day, in the depths of our hatred and our ignorance, we even murdered him on a cross. From that black day in Genesis 3, 6, we were counted among God's enemies. I want that to soak in for a second. We were God's enemies. We made ourselves his enemies. And the Bible makes very clear what happens to anybody who dares stand against God. They lose. And they lose hard. King David wrote about this in Psalm 92. He said, For surely your enemies, Lord, us, for surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. The prophet Nahum, you might not ever, this might be the first time you've ever heard Nahum brought up in a sermon. He doesn't get trotted out a lot. But at the beginning, he, he actually was another, along with Jonah, he was a prophet that went and prophesied against Nineveh. And Nahum, at the beginning of his book, he wrote this. He said, the Lord is a jealous an avenging God. He takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Not all willy-nilly. He's not doing it toward a, just toward his enemies. And when the truth of this hits you, when you realize that by sinning, you have made yourself an enemy 
of the Almighty. Real terror, real despair follows. God's justice demands satisfaction for these attacks against his holy, righteous self, and as his enemies wear a square in the crosshairs. Yet, both David and Nahum noticed that there was something interesting going on here. That God, even though we were waging war against God, we hated God, we were sinning against God, God had every right to slam his fist down upon us and bring his holy wrath against us. He didn't. He held off. Nahum, just a couple verses after saying the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, he wrote this. Just a couple verses later. He said, but the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is good. The Lord cares for those who trust in him. You see, here's the interesting thing. Even as we waged war against God, even as the world right now, the world we live in, you don't have to look far for people trying to tear God out of heaven, do everything they can to drag him down, to get rid of him, to push him behind us, to destroy him. Even as we're doing all of that, the Lord held back in his righteous anger out of his love and his care for us. He loved his enemies. God loved his enemies. So he worked mightily through all of creation for a redemption plan to bring us back into his arms, for there to be a path back to him. And that's what really brings us to the Christmas story. Now you're thinking, why is he talking about so much about war on Christmas? It's because you have to understand that before you can get to some shepherds sitting on a hill outside Bethlehem. As Luke wrote in his gospel, he wrote this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. They were, they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? Terrified, sore afraid, quaking in their pants. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. They praised God. They said, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace. At this moment, the shepherds beheld what had to be the entire army of heaven. I talked about this in our devotions with my kids last night. We were talking about what the shepherds saw and I said that these words don't mean that there was like 12 of the best choir singers of heaven that came down, they kind of floated around, Ah! they weren't doing that. They said the, the shep- what the shepherds saw, the Bible says, was, was what was the specific words. There was a, a magnitude of angels. The entire army of heaven marched out in front of the shepherds. More angels than the stars in the sky. And my kids asked, they said, were they armed? Because they always want to know those details. I said, you better believe they were armed. You better believe they had swords in their hands. And they were marching. And those shepherds saw it. And yes, they were sore afraid. Because what probably the first thing that marched through their head was that the shepherds were bracing themselves for the final battle. 
They knew in their heart of hearts that they had sinned against the holy God. And here God's army, his representatives, had shown up. And they were armed, they were mighty, and the shepherds, all they could do is prepare to be swept away by heaven's might. To die. Because they knew they deserved it. Yet instead of God in that moment declaring war on us, he declared peace instead. This is the real peace of Christmas. we got to get down to. It's much more profound than I think a lot of people think. When you drive down, I'm sure you've seen a lot of great houses decorated this season. It's pretty much all we're doing. I mean, we're just driving around neighborhoods looking at great houses because what else do we have to do in the year of COVID? But we're looking at all these houses, and I've lost track of how many houses I've seen the word peace on their lawn, peace in their windows, angels with a big trumpet trumpeting peace. And I keep thinking, what do they think that word means? For a lot of them, maybe it's just a hope, a wish that one day, maybe in the future, all of us will get along together, that there will be this world peace and we'll make heaven on earth and it will be all hunky-dory. Maybe for some people it's just a desire for serenity, for inner peace, and to have one moment where the kids aren't jabbering and when the phone's not going off the hook and when there's not a million emails to answer. That's not the peace of Christmas. The peace of Christmas is an ending of a war between God and man. It's a cessation of hostilities. Peace is declared. People celebrate. It happened on V-Day. It happened in Luke 2, verse 14. It makes me think of back in college, I had a short stint, very short stint, as a security guard, and I got the night shift, which was just the worst shift to get, which meant from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., I had to uh, sit there in a chair and then once an hour walk around campus with a flashlight. And it's freezing cold, and I'm looking out the windows of people who are all snuggled up in their beds, and they're sleeping, and I just hated them with every fiber of my being because I'm out there in the cold with a flashlight. And I've got, my imagination is just going in overdrive, right? It's really dark. It's so quiet. Even like, thousands of people in a college at 3 a.m. is eerily silent. And I'm just walking with my flashlight. My imagination's going, Justin, I bet there's going to be a murderer who's just going to jump out of that bush right in front of you. And he's going to go, ah, got a flashlight. And guess what you're going to do? And I'm like, well, I'm probably going to fall over dead because that will be the scariest thing. I'll see, you know, I can't handle that. And I'm thinking of that, that, those kind of nights because what did the shepherds think as they're sitting in the most calm, serene evening ever? And it's pitch black. There's not a lot of light there. There's just the stars. And suddenly, the blazing host of heaven breaks into our reality in front of them. And not just breaks into our reality to scare them, but to tell them, don't be afraid. We've got a proclamation. We have an announcement to share with you. But why these shepherds? Why not the richest people in the country? Why not the religious elite who could certainly have done all the studying, all the homework, and knew everything of, of this importance that God was being announced he was coming to earth? Why not go to the king, King Herod, and announce it? Why shepherds? I'm sure we've all talked, you've all heard the stories of how shepherds weren't really like, they were kind of down there. Well, it's true. Shepherds, but they're probably a lot lower than you even realize. 
Shepherds back then, let's picture a totem pole in society. At the top of the totem pole of Jewish society, you would have had probably the high priest, uh, the king, the really rich people, the rabbis. They would be all the way at the top. Then you would have kind of wealthy merchants, good people. And then down here, depending on your job, your lot of life, you'd be a little lower. At the way bottom, at the very bottom of the social totem pole in, the, in Jewish life, would be the lepers. If you're a leopard, if you're diseased, you're outcast from society, you couldn't come near anybody. It wasn't just you had to wear a mask if you were around them. You could not be around them. So they were right at the bottom. But one step above the lepers were the shepherds. People did not respect shepherds. They spoke of them like they were thieves. If you were a shepherd, you couldn't go to court. Nobody would uh, accept your testimony because nobody would trust you. But these are the people... God decided, I'm going to come down and be the first people to share with the announcement of the birth of the Savior. Because God has this weird love obsession with shepherds. He loves shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Amos, he was prophet in the Old Testament. Look it up. He was a shepherd. And shepherds cared for their flock. They guided them. They tended to them. And when Jesus grew up, he was called the great shepherd. God came to shepherds because they knew instinctively through their job, they knew exactly what this really meant, that a great shepherd was born to the people. God doesn't just share his message to the people who are the best of the best. We look around society, we could always say, well, those people, those are the really good people. Those are the really rich people. Those are the people who got high up in political. I'm a nobody. God comes for the nobodies. God gives his theology, God gives his announcements to the Oxford professor as he does a shipyard worker or the clerk who's working at Tim Hortons. He does it to all people. That's why the angel said in verse 10, this was good news that will cause great joy to all people. This was astounding. Not just to the Jews. They would have thought just to the Jews. We're God's people. No, now the angels are saying to all people. All people? Black people? Yes. White people? Yes. Arabic? Yeah. Jewish? Yes. Gay? Yes. Straight? Yeah. Men? Women? Celebrities? Nobodies? Single mothers? Nuclear families? Public sinners? Private sinners? Prisoners? Politicians? They're the same group. But anyways, yeah. all people. So if you're looking at yourself going, God's not going to look at me. Well, the shepherds definitely thought that. And look what happened to them one night when God shows up and he gives them a proclamation. God is not going to be scared off by your sins. He's not going to be scared off by your looks. And he's not going to be scared off by your life choices to date. I've never yet met one person in this world whose sins were so great that the blood of Christ wasn't greater still. You absolutely are the target for this proclamation. And what continues to be Amazing is that this proclamation of peace, the ending of a war, is that year after year when we go through the Christmas story and we look at it, we go, what, what was the delivery method for that proclamation of peace? That peace came in a little baby, wrapped in cloths, lying in an animal feeding trough. The angel said, a Savior has been born to you. Tomorrow morning, maybe tonight if you're not patient, You'll go under the tree, and you'll, you'll start sorting. You'll sort the gifts, 
And the gifts that matter to you are the ones that say to your name at the top. Those are the good gifts. All the rest of them can go in the trash as far as you care. You care about the ones to you. And here the angels are saying, the Savior has been born to you. Your name's on this gift. It's for you, to you. Not to somebody else, not to a better person that you might imagine being out there. It's to you. It's on your gift to open. Right there in verse 11, another interesting little fact here in Luke, is that this is the only time in all of the Gospels where these three titles for Jesus are given in rapid succession. Savior, Messiah, Lord. This is what you're unwrapping. You're unwrapping a Savior. You're unwrapping a Messiah, a Lord. Because this baby would save people from their sins. He would fulfill every single prophecy of the Old Testament. He would be Lord and God over all. When we consider the war we've been waging, how long we have been fighting against God, the destructive power of sin, how greatly we've ruined the world and our relationships, you have to imagine that a peacekeeper would have to be greater than all of that. And that could only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When we were still against God, God was born to us. Or as Romans 5 liked to put it, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still at war, God died for us. Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Maybe you thought I was exaggerating at the start of this, saying that we were God's enemies. I didn't make that up. It's right there in Romans 5. We were God's enemies. It's plain. Paul can't, says, I can't put it any more plain than that. As we were his enemies, as we deserved the full measure of God's wrath, of his justice to come down and exact upon us, Jesus died for us. As we were his enemies. And he made it possible to be reconciled to God through him. Jesus brought peace. But here's the thing. Here's what you need to understand. That this peace that comes from God through Jesus to us, to all people, can only be applied to those on whom his favor rests. That's the most important part you've got to understand here. This isn't a universal peace. This isn't a peace. God cannot, or God chooses, not to push his peace upon people who want to remain at war with him. God will not come up to say to somebody who says, I reject you, God. And God says, well, you don't have a choice in the matter. I'm going to save you anyways. He, can't, he won't do that. God's peace is only for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the only people who, whose favor, God's favor rests upon them. To those who hear and believe the Messiah, the war is over. It ended a long time ago. And following that, there's peace, there's reconciliation and restoration. We talked at the beginning about how Japan dragged the U.S. into war on December 7, 1941. But what I always find fascinating is after all the atrocities, all that war, all the death, what happened after the war? Did the U.S. walk away from Japan and just leave them 
to rot in all their bombed out buildings. We spent billions to restore their country. We rebuilt it. We, we forged together a new relationship between their country and ours. That's what res- reconciliation and restoration is like. It's a great template, but a better template is the restoration and reconciliation that the peace through Jesus brings to us. We've been at war with Jesus for so long that we have no idea how to have a proper relationship with him. So he says, it's okay. I'm going to teach you that. I'm going to come into your life. I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to please me, how to live a better life so that you're not filled with shame anymore, so that you don't turn around and you regret the last 10 things you've done, so that you can live a life where things you do matter not just for now, but matter for all eternity. I'm going to give you a life that is full of purpose and full of peace, full of promise. I'm going to give you that. That's my reconciliation. That's my restoration with you so that you and I can become closer day by day. This peace, if this is you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, the war is over and you can wake up tomorrow morning and you know, you can wake up every morning, you know that everything is right between you and God that no longer does God hold your sins against you. He will never bring up in a catty little moment when an argument, he goes, well, you know, I have been keeping track of all the ways you've been naughty this year. For, for those who are in Christ, there is no naughty list. There's just a list of ways that he loves us. But it could be that you're still at war with God. It could be that you're still his enemy. Perhaps your pride is getting in the way of you kneeling down and repenting of your sins, the sins that you know you've done against him. Maybe you feel like, I'm just irredeemable. I've done too much. I'm damaged goods. God wouldn't want me. Well, I've, I could show you many places in the Bible that says that's a lie. Absolutely, he wants you. Maybe you think you have a cause to hate God. I've met a lot of people like that. They refuse to go to Jesus because they're just too angry at God. It's possible you've spent your life believing, you've listened to others that tell you there is no God. That the words of the Bible, that's just a way to control you, a way to oppress you. All I can say to you is that the words of the angels here, the words that they brought to the shepherds, are not designed to control you. They are designed to set you free, to show you a path forward out of the prison of sin that you've been in your whole life. You may hate Jesus. You may deny him. He loves you, even still. He died for you. He had his eyes on you. He made every fiber of your being. He adores you so deeply. He calls to you, and he offers you the same peace that he offered to the shepherds that day. A peace that will make things right, with the one you've harmed for so long. So my invitation tonight is just to accept that peace. If you accept that peace tonight, then tomorrow morning you're going to have the most amazing Christmas of your life because you already have opened the best present you're ever going to get. You will be at peace with God. Let me tell you, that is the biggest load off your shoulders you will ever experience. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we hear the same proclamation of peace that you made to the shepherds, we know that there's an invitation tucked in there 
there is a promise, there is a reassurance. Lord, thank you that you declared peace. Thank you that you loved us so much that even though our sins deserve justice, that you chose to take those sins and put them on the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he became a curse for us, that we might know peace. We might know you. We might have a second chance, Lord, a chance of redemption, a chance to become holy and pure. Please repair us. Please draw us to you. Please help us to be a witness, a light in this world. Help us to be full of kindness and grace as we go out, be with our family and be with our friends this Christmas. Lord, that this isn't a time to win political arguments and a time to settle or to get, get even for past wrongs. But Lord, it is a time to love because you have loved us. And all God's people said, Amen.